Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. I know that it has been a while since I last released an episode, and I appreciate everyone for sticking with us. We have a very special episode for you, just in time for the holidays. Most of the episodes of this podcast include surgeons with amazing stories of how they were inspired to become orthopedic surgeons and how they have thrived in this field. This story is a little bit different, and I want to present you with this very special gift, the gift that is Jillian Williams. Being here at MD Anderson to pursue my fellowship in orthopedic oncology, I have been blessed to meet so many kind and extraordinary individuals. Jillian is one of those humans with a bubbly personality and an incredible story. Jillian was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma in 2016, a few days prior to her 19th birthday. She underwent chemotherapy, a rotation plasty procedure, which is a type of amputation in which you remove the disease segment of bone and the patient's ankle becomes their knee joint. She then underwent post-operative chemotherapy. We talk about her life prior to her diagnosis, her cancer story, as well as her life after all of her treatments, including her role as a wife, a mother, an industry representative, and creator of the Live and Leap Foundation. I truly had a blast speaking with Jillian, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Jillian Williams. Jillian Williams. Yes. Here we are yes. recording this. Finally. Thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I know for doing this. So Jillian, in your own words, can you describe your background, where you grew up, where you did your schooling, how you came to MD Anderson? I have a pretty funny background. Like growing up, um, I grew up in a very small town, 2,500 people, oh, wow. which is crazy because like that's the size of my neighborhood now. <laughs> Um, but I grew up in the country showing livestock, um, playing all the sports there was because right. my school was so small. So it like allowed me to, you know, literally do anything I wanted to. Um, it's a little town called Odom, Texas, which mm-hmm. is just north of Corpus Christi. Um, so I played sports like throughout school and stuff. And then whenever I got into high school, I decided I wanted to focus more on volleyball. Mm-hmm. So I committed my life essentially to volleyball and knew I wanted to play in college. So I, um, junior, senior year, really focused on recruiting and things like that. I chose to play division three because I wanted to be able to play. I'm not the tallest and not the fastest, but, um, I knew that if I went division three, then I would like essentially get the opportunity to see the court a little right, more. Right. So went to a school called Texas Lutheran. It's just outside of San Antonio and while I was there, I started experiencing severe knee pain. And as athletes do, I was like, oh, it's just nothing. I tore my meniscus. <laughs> you know, people play on torn meniscus all the time. It's fine. And I finished out my season, gained a starting position. Oh, my god! Because I had worked all freshman season to do that. And about um, two months after that is when I went to a doctor, did not have a torn meniscus. My meniscus is actually great. And I had a um, lesion on my bone, which was first diagnosed as a non-ossifying fibroma. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. And the orthopedic surgeon, he's a sports doc that I was seeing, 
he was like, I've been doing this way too long. Most people know him. It's Jesse DeLee in San Antonio. Um, he's like, I've seen many non-ossifying fibromas. Right. And I don't agree with this. I want to watch it and monitor it. And so he did. Thankfully, he did because we watched it for about two months and it continued to grow. Mm. And he called an orthopedic oncologist and said, no questions asked. You're doing a biopsy Monday morning. This mm-hmm. is a Friday afternoon. They had me... Um, do a biopsy and it came back as Ewing sarcoma. And that's what kind of brought, brought me to here. MD Anderson. Yeah. 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 I, the surgeon that um, diagnosed me, like told me I can, like, you can stay with me throughout practice. And he really wanted me to, or throughout my treatment and stuff. Right. He really wanted me to. I wasn't very comfortable with it. And I knew so many people, it's wild, who had come to MD Anderson with bone tumors. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a boy that I was kind of like very intrigued with this story. It made me want to go into orthopedic oncology, which is wild. Um, quickly changed my mind after my diagnosis, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just you're like, nope. I love orthopedic oncologists. It just wasn't the field for me, but his, they do a lot with MD Anderson and with Dr. Lewis. And right. his mom called Dr. Lewis and said, I have a patient. It's the week of her 19th birthday. They're not letting her in as a pediatric. It's doing sarcoma. What do we need to do to get her in? Right. And Dr. Lewis said, like, I'll be there on Wednesday for clinic. Um, We'll get her in through the um, surgical side and then send her to oncology. So that's what we did. That's what you did. Yeah. I have a crazy long story. (laughs) No, it's, it's, I think what I, the one part you did forget, at least that I've researched, is that you were a Miss Teen USA contestant. Yes. I competed for Miss Texas Teen USA, which is very interesting as well. Like I grew up, I have like girl cousins, but I have an older cousin. He's seven months older than me. We live right down the road from each other very competitive with one another right and that was one thing I knew that we could not compete in is pageants and so and I was just very girly I always have been pretty girly um and his dad is my mom's brother and he didn't have girls he has two boys and so all the boy cousins like thought it was the coolest thing ever you know um to compete and so yeah I competed when I was 16 years old uh for Miss Texas teen I was Miss Corpus Christi and probably one of the coolest most like awesome experiences I've ever done and the people I've gotten to meet with it like doing it Mm -hmm. um like two of the girls I competed with both were Miss Texas and competed at Miss USA and so just like the relationships and the connections I made is wild like a realtor she was Miss Texas and my husband he also grew up with all brothers knows nothing about pageants he thought it was the coolest thing ever to like Oh. Get to, you know, just experience yeah. that side of life. And it's very different. Yeah. Now, during uh, Miss USA, we eat pizza and drink wine. As I you should. Wine. He just eats pizza. pizza. Oh, my God. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, shame. That's, that's fun fact. Fun fact. Yes. I know. I discovered that as I was like, of course. If you Google you, me. It's... I, yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, I was just like, oh, I didn't know I that. Know. I always tell people, I'm like, my story literally grows if you like. Yeah. Like when I meet people, I'm like, okay. What's the context of me meeting them? Is mm-hmm. it cancer? Because that's like a lot of people. Right. Is it work? Is it pageants? Like what is like sports? How do right. I approach? Because if I tell them everything at one time, I feel like they're not going to believe me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So. I would love to sort of give our listeners the lowdown mm-hmm. on Ewing's mm-hmm. kind of Lewis style. Yeah. In terms of 
at least educate them with regard to what it is. Yes. I love this idea too. Cause a lot of people ask me, right. I'm like, I mean, I worked for a striker and I did joint replacement, right. But that doesn't mean I know. Right. And I've, I've had Ewing sarcoma, but that doesn't mean I know everything about it. So yeah. Yeah. And I would love your commentary. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Ewing sarcoma, second most common primary malignancy of bone. It is a small round cell sarcoma. Incidence is one in one million. The the small round cell thing. Yes. Um, so at my diagnosis, mm-hmm. they were back and forth between lymphoma and Ewing sarcoma yes. because yes. they present themselves the same. The cells. Blue. It's small round. Yeah. 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 Small round cells. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was, yep. Yeah. Um, it primarily affects, uh, adolescent and young adult population. So check, you were 19, mm -hmm. although you were older a little bit. You were 19 versus. Yeah. So week of my 18th birthday. And it's funny because I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm not a pediatric. What is happening? Because everyone was like, you have to be treated pediatrically. And I was like, well, now I have to sign my own papers. Like this doesn't make sense, (laughs) but yes. Oh my gosh. And then. Caucasians are nine times more likely to be affected with Ewing sarcoma in comparison mm-hmm. to African Americans as well as Asians, actually. Wow. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. Um, male to female ratio is 60 to 40. Um, most often, Ewing's presents with swelling, pain, fever, weight loss, as well as fatigue, mm-hmm. which you had a lot of. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, I got super thin in college and I thought right. maybe it's because, like, I didn't like cafeteria food I know. because I'm like so <laughs> you're busy. eating like a bird <laughs> yeah but also something to add is like I had severe knee pain at night yeah which whenever yes. I told my the sports doc that I was yeah. seeing he was like yeah red is, flag this, yeah this is yeah. not normal so yeah. that was not, I was like super tired during the day but I was tossing and turning all night. Mm-hmm. So like my 8 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday was anatomy. Mm-hmm. And I would literally show up like a zombie because I was mm-hmm. just like. You couldn't even Yeah, sleep. but I was playing volleyball on my legs. So right. it, it was like so weird because it wasn't making sense. Yeah. Because during the day I was functioning like mm-hmm. normal. Right. Which is, yeah. It's crazy how the night pain, like even in the clinics and the patients that we see, if I get that night pain, I'm like, okay, like. You we hone in. You, yeah, yes. you really hone in on that. And I, you know, been very lucky with a job that I've had to work with a lot of just joint docs. Right, right. And that don't specialize in oncology. And they mm-hmm. hear about Ewing's and osteosarcoma through, like, residency. And right. they might see one or two patients, not right. super common. But I always... I literally, they won't, they don't want my unsolicited advice, but I give it to them all the time. I'm like, if you have a patient come in that is under 20, mm-hmm. that says I have pain or whatever, ask about night pain. And yeah. if it's a yes, then just further investigate yeah. it. But yeah. that's, again, I'm a patient, like, yeah. I'm very passionate about that because I do feel like the um, reoccurrence rate and the metastatic rate is so high because mm-hmm. a lot of patients when they're young, so they don't know how to fully communicate, like, what kind right. of pain they're in and how often they're in pain. But it goes on for so long mm-hmm. because a lot of people are, like, intimidated, I think, to investigate it further. Right, right. You know? And it's just – it's not common, correct? Correct. But it should warrant further investigation yeah. and get help. You know what yeah. I mean? There's so many Yeah, and who around. knows if it will change the outcome, but it's, like, doesn't hurt. Yeah. It's, like, let's investigate a little more. Yeah, so, yeah. No, that's so true. 
x-rays usually show like a permeative lytic lesion. Um, I'm surprised that it was sort of in you, it was so early that maybe it was just sort of this kind of radiolucent lesion. What, were you distal femur or proximal tibia? Distal femur. Distal femur. And then it was very, my tumor on the first x-ray was a very small shadow. Hmm. At diagnosis, it was, I think like five centimeters. So it was fairly small right. for Ewing sarcoma. Right. Um, but I was also like, we have to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I have to be back on the court for the right. spring season, like get it figured mm-hmm. out. Um, but at my first, like my first x-ray, I think it was only like a centimeter and a half. Yeah. Which is crazy. It grew that big yes. in less than three months. Yes. So, yeah. And then the the bone mm-hmm. will have the, like a periosteal reaction. Yeah. So like onion skinning, because mm-hmm. that's how the bone, the tumor is growing so fast. The bone can't literally keep up up. exactly yeah um mri of the whole bone is how you work it up Mm -hmm. because you need to look for all the lesions and all the land ct chest Mm -hmm. i'm sure you had lots of those did you have a bone biopsy or a bone marrow biopsy i did yeah i did that was horrendous yeah so it's quite the experience (laughs) the four oncologists that did it so of course they didn't know me yet so they didn't know my like wild personality right and like i said i showed livestock growing up and the amount of things that you see in the livestock world mm-hmm. is quite wild. You know, like we've had to staple up lambs before because they've run into the fence and like right. sutures and they like will get um, like pus filled pockets and you have to drain like right. gross, weird things. Okay. So as this oncologist is like doing my bone marrow biopsy, I have adverse reaction to like all the calming medicines. Right. So I talk a lot now and it's like times 15. Oh my God. So I'm literally telling him about all like the aspirations I've done on on livestock. Yeah, as he's like drilling through my pelvis, and he's like, "Are you like, are you okay? We get out, and he's like, is she okay?" And my parents like, "Yeah, she's fine. Like that's just Jill." Like, oh my god. So yeah. Um, and then you had a, did you have a pet? I did. Yeah, and then they got your LDH as well, which is the lab marker. Yes. Yeah. yeah which all that was pretty low. My pet scan just showed my. Just at the at the uh, distal like femur. The distal femur yeah. Um which of course because I didn't have metastatic disease, but we don't do pet like didn't do pets anymore after that. Mm-hmm. It was just chest CT right. after you had your biopsy, um, and they sent it off and all those things and show small round blue cells. Mm-hmm. Um and they do there's lots of different tumors that have small round blue cells, and so they send it off for all this um cytogenetic testing. And so that's when they find out like and they're able to identify its ewings in comparison to like lymphoma Mm -hmm. and and all those other things um after you get a biopsy that's confirmed with ewings Mm -hmm. you had chemotherapy correct and then you were it's the vincristine doxorubicin cyclophosphamide with alternating iphosphamide and yeah Mm -hmm. i used to know those chemos like yeah it'd be like Telling people, okay, this is the chemos that you're going to have this time. Because, like, I was just so... Yeah. And I was intrigued with medicine. Right. So I was... Did all the research on it. Also, fun fact. Um, while I was going through treatment, every time I got um, iphosphamide etoposide, mm-hmm. I believe it was those two, I would get a gross sulfur taste in my mouth. Like, Ugh. it was awful. So I did research on the compound of it. Like, mm-hmm. what is, right. what are these chemos made out of? Sulfur is is in I can't remember which one it was. Right. 
So of course me, like being me, I like marched my way down to the pharmacy where they're like compounding the chemos. And I asked for the pharmacist who was like making my chemo. Right. And I was like, they are able to flavor so many things. Uh-huh. Why can we not flavor this chemo? Like, or change something. You in- mean like put like like a bubble gum flavor in something. it? Or like, or something or- where I'm just not tasting sulfur for six hours of my treatment. And he's looking at me like, who the heck are you? Where'd you come from? Um, and I'm like, I'm Dr. Stavalski's patient yeah, upstairs. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I've read up on the compound. This is what it's made out of. So he started buying Altoids. And when he drops chemo off to his patients, he takes a little box of Altoids to them. Oh, shame. To eat while oh. they're on. Because he was like, I've never had. And, you know, he's doing pediatric chemos. Right, right. He's never had anyone be like. But that also induced, induces throwing up. Right. So these patients are like throwing up from, I mean, chemo does it right. anyway. But like the taste is not helping. Right. So he started delivering Altoids. And it's a fun fact if there's any oncologists listening, or even oncologists or pharmacists. That's yeah. a, something Altoids. that yes. I learned while I was on treatment. Right. And I tell all patients, I'm like, get you a box of Altoids before you start. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, why? And I'm like, just do it. Just do it. You'll be cool. Thank you later. <laughs> oh, my God. And it's what, yours. How long was your chemotherapy? Because normally for Ewing's, you do chemo before, mm-hmm. surgery, chemo after. Yeah. So I had 26 rounds. So I had um, three months of chemo. Then I had like about a month off for my amputation. Right. And then another nine months of chemo. Right. So it was a total of 11 months, um, just like based on counts and stuff, like throwing me off. I was very lucky. I don't know if it was my age. I don't know if it was just like my health. My dad's big thing was like, you have to eat. Yeah. If you don't feel good, I'm sorry. But like put something in your body Mm -hmm. because you're having to process all these chemicals that are like saving your life right so right um i am one of those patients that gained weight on chemo because i ate like i was like i am yeah i have and that i thankfully did not throw up one time on chemo oh good um but yeah so it was about 11 months total i started um beginning of march or end of march and i finished beginning of february right following you so and then you came here mm-hmm. and saw the surgeons yes and at that initial meeting, mm-hmm. can you sort of talk about what, how um, your tumor was described to you and what the, how the options were presented and how you sort of processed everything? Yeah. So before I ever met with the surgeons, um, my mom is a lawyer, so she researches. Just, like, my all, mom's the same. Yes. All, yes. It's yes. like nonstop research. Mm-hmm. And they're good at it. They're, they're incredible at it. Yeah. I'm like, how? <laughs> how did you learn that? Like, yeah. How like, how did you know that? So my mom had done a ton of research on surgery options right like i mentioned the boy that i knew growing up he had passed away from osteosarcoma Mm -hmm. by the time that i was diagnosed but um he had limb salvage and then i also had done through the research my mom had done knew about above the knee amputation Mm -hmm. so when i went in i was for sure amputating i went in and i said okay i want to above the knee amputation i don't want to lose my way of life right i'm very active right um one of my thoughts was if I have a kid one day and he starts running away from me or she, mm-hmm. he, you know, but if he starts <laughs> running away from me, what do I do? Right. If I'm not really supposed to be running on this prosthesis or they want to play soccer outside, what am I like? I'm right. supposed to sit there and like let my husband do it all. Right. So I was very apprehensive with doing endoprosthesis. Um, so when we got there, 
Dr. Lewis, of course, knew a little bit about my case and what was going on, knew I was very active. So she sat down and she had two options for me. She was like, you can do above the knee amputation or there's this other surgery I do called rotation plasty. Mm-hmm. So crazy. I won. I never heard of it. But about three months before my diagnosis, there's a girl named Gabby Shaw. She is pretty much who put rotation plasty on the map. Um, she's a dancer. She's mm-hmm. a ballerina. Most people they know about rotation plasty have seen her video. Right. Um, but I saw it like three months before I was diagnosed, and I was like, "Oh, that's weird." Yeah. Oh, I was like, "Oh, I'm looking at." Yeah. Um. So it kind of made me like a little like. Yeah. Like weirded out at first. Um. And so Dr. Lewis was talking about. It. I looked at my parents. I was like, I literally just saw this video on like Facebook. Mm-hmm. My parents are like what are you talking about? Just, just, just listen. Just yeah. listen. And, you know, and my mom's like, and dad are trying to process like, yes, they're writing all the notes and all yeah. the land oh and just, yeah. Fun fact. When we went to my first oncology appointment, my mom sat at the oncologist is like, we met in like a patient room, yeah. but she sat at his desk and like put all no. her papers out. <laughs> and she had like a whole like legal pad of papers oh. and had all these questions for him. Right. And he didn't get to, she didn't get to ask him one of them because he answered all of them before. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, we had listened to her spiel about it. And when we walked out of there, I looked at my parents and I said, I'm doing rotation plasty. And of course they're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Like you were just time out. Yeah. yeah. Like we need to talk about this. And I was like, now remember I'm an adult. Like I'm 19. <laughs> and my mom's like, you wanted to be a kid. What do you mean? You know, just like joking with right. me. But um, I said, no, I think this is going to be the best option for me. And it's funny because Dr. Lewis and I like talk about it to this day. She's like, I've never had someone so set in their like decision. Like right. you did not waver one time. And I was like, one, I felt at peace about it. I knew that this was like going to give me a great way of life. Um, I did not have any idea how awesome of a life it would allow me to have. Right. But um I also knew that if something happened and I did not like my rotation plasty or if it failed or whatever, I still had another option. Right. I could still go to an AK and I would also have a longer residual limb mm-hmm. versus how short I would have had to have been if I would have chose AK in the beginning. Right. So, um, yeah, my dad, so funny, we went down to eat at the cafeteria at MD Anderson mm-hmm. and Chick-fil-A. Yep. And he disappeared for like an hour. And I'm like, where is dad? And I was like, he's in the restroom. My dad had colon cancer a couple of years before right. me. So it wasn't like uncommon for him right. to go to the bathroom. But I was like, no, he's been gone too. I, yeah. He must have fallen in. Like, you should probably go check on him. Um, and he came back and he, I could tell he'd been crying. Oh. And from my diagnosis, I was like, there's no crying. Like, we... I can't, I cannot fight the way I need to fight. I feel like I'm going to sit here and like, boohoo, I'm going to be fine. And if I'm not fine, everything's going to be okay. Like, right. Chill out. No crying. So he was like, I had to go away to cry. And I was like, good. I'm glad you went away. But I also had to remind him, like, we have no idea what my life's going to look like after. It could be a million times better than it's ever been. And we can't sit in it right now and like wonder, like, what if? Because it's not going to get me where I need to get to. And sure enough, it's been absolutely awesome yeah yeah so how did you go from seeing the video of the dancer Mm -hmm. seeing her just so everyone knows a um rotation plasty is a procedure in which you are able to get your margins that you Mm -hmm. need for your tumor um 
but you create a functional below the knee amputation because you take the ankle and make it the patient's knee mm -hmm. quite literally. Um, how, and so literally your foot is backwards um, on your leg and that's how you're able to sort of recreate the knee joint. Mm -hmm. How did you go from seeing the dancer, seeing the way um, that her leg looked and sort of, you know, that reaction to then, you know, three months later being like, this is the path for me. So when I met with Dr. Lewis, one of her things was she was really good at reminding me that life without a prosthetic is very temporary. So she was like, most women and most like parents, because a lot of times it's parents making the decisions for their kids, mm -hmm. their apprehensiveness behind it is the cosmetic side of it. Right. And she was very like straightforward with that approach. Um, and she was like, nobody, like after a year when you're walking in a prosth uh, prosthesis, like nobody knows. That right. No one knows. Your foot's on backwards. And so when she kind of like, like, let me know that also, like I said, I'm just like a wild personality. So I'm like, well, let's just like figure it out and see what it looks like. I don't know. Um, I'm not a typical patient, but uh, she, because she was very good about like laying that out in the beginning mm -hmm. and also letting me know, like, you're going to be in a prosthetic one day. Like this is not you without your leg on is not forever. Right. And so I of course like went back and watched Gabby's videos and I was like, yeah, she never not has her leg on unless she was filming and like showing mm -hmm. people what her leg looked like. So um, I think that's kind of like where the mental switch happened. It's like, I, this is not like, no one's going to see my foot on backwards right. forever. Right. So, and then, most people that do know about it, they want to like learn more. Right. And I'm also big on awareness. So the weirdness, quote unquote, behind it allowed me to talk about it more. So mm -hmm. the first year I did not have a prosthetic, I was telling everyone about Ewing sarcoma. I was putting mm -hmm. awareness about Ewing sarcoma. I was going all over speaking about Ewing sarcoma. And so one is wow, one of the places I went and spoke. Six months later, her son was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, but she was also very on top of it in the beginning right. because she was like, had just heard my story. So right. um, I think it's, I don't really know exactly when that switch happened, but I think just knowing that life without a prosthetic was very temporary. Right. Kind of like eased the anxiety behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your, and the reason why, because they need the junction to heal. Yes. Um, how long for you, how long did that take? So my amputation was July 7th and <laughs> Dr. Lewis, I'm sure is going to listen to this. Um, I begged for a prosthetic by Christmas. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want a leg. I just want a leg. I yeah. just want an extension. But I actually had something going on and I needed a leg to be able to like walk in it. <laughs> but I, so she approved me for a leg in December, but would not allow me to walk. So they locked it straight. Right. Um, and then in Corpus, there's a thing called coronation. Okay. It's uh, called Las Donas de la Corte. And it is where you wear these like big, pretty dresses. Yes. Or long train. It's, yes. There's like the rose vest. And there's a bunch right. of them all over okay. in Corpus. Um, I was asked to be in it. So I had to walk in this beautiful dress on stage and do this bow. And... <laughs> This is so funny. I can't wait for her to listen. Um, she 
approved me to walk with crutches. Okay. I could 50% weight bear. Okay. Okay. But like me being the person I am, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, that means I can use one crutch, right? Cause like what's 50% of my weight makes sense. So I used one crutch during the coronation and which was in May of the following year. So almost a year, right? yeah. really close. Um, one of her surgeon friends was in the audience and sent her a video no. of me. So, so this is like Thursday through Sunday. It's like this huge party of events. I get a call Monday morning from the Dr. Lewis asking what I was doing walking on my prosthetic. Oh my God. So yeah, that's kind of how uh, the walking journey began. So I... Of course, like went back on two crutches after that because I was like terrified of her, right? And um, did not want my leg to be taken away <laughs> because my junction wasn't healed, like, right? Yeah, it, it was not smart of me to do. I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, Joel, you were clearly 19 years old, yes. Um, not that I'm much older now, but right. I would not do that now, right? Um, so then I went back to college in August of the following year, so that's mm-hmm. a whole year. And I decided I was not going to take any crutches to college because I had figured out how to walk by then. Mm-hmm. I really did not. And I fell about six weeks later and oh. broke my tibia. So that was off my leg another 12 weeks. Oh, God. And then I started walking again in, like, February. Of, so 2016 was my amputation. 2017 is when I broke my leg. Right. 2018 is when, like, I really started walking. Right. So it was almost like a year and a half, which is not uncommon. Um, I do feel like younger pediatric patients heal quicker. Yeah. And just so our listeners, the junction is basically the, where you connect the tibia bone to the residual femur bone. And so you need that, that that quote unquote, that junction to heal Mm -hmm. before you allow patients to put weight on their, on their leg. Um, Just like theoretically, like, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, because it's my femur, my tibia are held together by a plate and eight screws. Yeah, literally. So it's just like, I think about people with periprosthetic fractures, like right. we were talking about earlier today. When they plate it, they can't walk for 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, you know me, I'm like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. It's like held together by a plate and yeah. some screws. Right. So once my bones grew together, so now my femur and tibia are one. Right. Um, and the plate is basically doing nothing because correct. the bones are healed. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you're very open, Mm -hmm. which I love and I very much appreciate uh, your resolve Mm -hmm. in terms of how you were, you were given that diagnosis Mm -hmm. of this is what you have. And you sort of making that statement of, I, this is what I need to do. There's no crying. This is how I, this is how we deal with this. Mm-hmm. What helped you to get to that mental space? Cause I feel like that's not, I, I do want to, I think that's a big thing. I think that yeah. that's, you know, it, it shows, it's a testament to who you are, mm-hmm. your character to be able to take something that completely upended your world and your life as you knew it. And to be able to say, very rationally of just like at, at a young age, like a pe- you know, yeah. pediatric slash young adult mm-hmm. person to be able to say, this is what has happened to me. This is how we shall proceed. Yeah. It's funny because I'm actually uh, processing that through therapy now because it's not the healthiest way to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to approach emotions. But um, I, I feel a lot off of like those I'm around. So if my parents were down, then I was down. Right. And 
of course you're like no like we're okay but Mm -hmm. we're sad today kind of thing um so I knew that for me to stay on top of my like mental health side of things through treatment Mm -hmm. I did have to be like as strong as possible this treatment is not easy um it I mean you're literally poisoning your body killing everything inside your body to heal what is like going on and so I don't I don't know if it was just like the athlete in me too that is like really good at compartmentalizing Mm -hmm. you know when you're on the court you're on the field you have one bad pass you have a bad hit whatever you can't sit in it it's Mm -hmm. like nope time to move on to the next one you know and so I I always felt very like deep down that I was going to be okay right again no matter what the outcome was I was like going to be okay and um I worried about my family more than anything Mm -hmm. of course I'm like well if I'm not okay then they're not going to be okay right right um so I was very much like this is our game plan Mm -hmm. we have 26 rounds of chemo treatments to get through and amputation after that then we can process like what we need to process but it's game time like Mm -hmm. we are on the court we have 25 points because that's how volleyball is you know yes 25 you have 25 points Mm -hmm. after point 25 game three you won it then like then we talk about it yeah during the time like we gotta we gotta go and so um my parents were like athletes going up but definitely not the level that I've been at and so uh it was harder I feel like on them to be like put on this game phase and now having a kid myself like I would never want to watch him like go through that yeah but they did such a great job at like reminding me too like when I was down of like right it's game time yeah we've got this like we've got this and I've noticed too like I've made so many friends like I call them my cancer friends or my cancer brother and sisters and many of I've lost and many I still have here with me. And it's kind of interesting to see the dynamics of Mm -hmm. like those who really sulk in the process struggle hard through it. And sometimes the outcomes aren't great. Like, and then there's the whole mental side of it that if, you know, treatment is successful and surgery is successful, then what life looks like after mm-hmm. for them. Um, I don't know if there's a direct correlation between it, but it's just, it's been very interesting to me to see right. it. Um, like my surgery decision, I don't know like when the like shift happened for me of like, no, like we got to fight, like yeah. no crying. Right. Um, like I mentioned, my dad had colon cancer two years before I was diagnosed and he was the same way. He was like, I'm going to be fine. Like, right. So I would tell my parents, <laughs> my dad would like sit there and like stare at me sometimes, which now I have a kid and I'm like, wow, I catch myself just staring at him. Like, I do like, too. It's yeah. With so him, yeah. You stare at him. Yeah, yeah. And you just, you like almost like look at everything on their body. And I would be like, I'm not an alien. Why are you staring at me? <laughs> and now I look back and I'm like, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. dad. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, you get it now. <laughs> it yeah. So much more sense. So, yeah. Um, but like I said, that's also not the healthiest way of like processing it. Cause now I process it more. Like I become more emotional about like things that I experienced through treatment. Mm-hmm. Not that I let them get me down, but it's like, Oh, clearly I haven't visited that part of my right. life yet. Right. That, um, has a lot of trauma behind it and that's okay. That's right. Not uncommon. Um, 
it's how we handle the trauma that mm-hmm. we experience and come out on top of it essentially. Right. Yeah. Is there a way, did you, do you wish that you had sort of like set aside like a day, a month or something to sort of like, okay, this is my day to process the trauma that I have been through. And then, okay, now that this day is over, we get to sort of keep marching on. Is there like, is there anything that you wish you had done differently knowing everything that you know now? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that probably would have been healthy for me, <laughs> honestly. Oh, you're fine. Um, because that would have like yeah allowed me to process it as we're going. And when you're on treatment, each month brings a different thing. Each right. day brings a different thing. Like my mom has her court schedules for like the next five years of yes. our lives. Yes. And well, my oncologist looked at her and was like, "Do not schedule anything for the next year." Like. Yeah, it's not gonna, and it's so true. Like it's mm-hmm. nothing goes on schedule. Accounts will get off or a cold. Like I had a cold one time, wild enough. Got a cold, pushed my surgery back two weeks or three weeks because my counts went to like ten. Oh god! So my like <laughs> oh, my CBC was bad, um, and so we had to push surgery off to Aww. be able to yeah. allow me to heal. But like those are just things that. Um, I didn't like we didn't process really. It was right. Like, All right, we gotta get to the next date. Like mm-hmm. you have blood I had blood tests every like three days to like make sure I didn't need a blood transfusion or platelets. So um processing along the way probably would have been a lot healthier. I did have a great um like psychologist with me through treatment. Right, right. Um, because I was treated pediatrically. Pediatric oncologist groups do a really good job at making sure that families and patients have that available. I don't know how well it is for adults. I know with my dad, there was like not really any resources right. that were directly handed to them. If you would have sought them out, then of yeah. course, but like it, she was part of my care team. Right. And so she did help me through like a lot of that as well. Right. It's like, I went through a breakup. <laughs> I went through so much on treatment, on treatment that I just like, I laugh about now, but I'm like, most people would struggle their freshman year of college getting through these things. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I just broke up with him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. My, and all my nurses were like, yeah, like if you need to break up with him, do it. You know, it's just like, it's so funny because they were like my, essentially my new teammates. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk about, cause the one thing sort of a con, if you will, Mm -hmm. of going through the rotation plasty option is the prosthesis. Your prosthesis, what I'm learning as I'm seeing patients in clinic is that the prosthesis one needs for a rotation plasty patient is different than sort of your uh, prosthesis for your transtibial amputation. And you, it requires a lot of fittings as Mm -hmm. well. And so there's no rubbing. What was, how has your prosthesis journey, if you will, been? A lot. (laughs) Um, It's so funny. I, like I said, a lot of people with rotation plasty are younger patients, like under 10, I would say. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably see more of them. But what I've encountered, they've been around like, you know, 12 and below. Um, Right, they're younger. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily know how to articulate everything that they don't like on their legs and stuff. Right. So I've always been very open to being the guinea pig for my uh, prosthetist. Mm -hmm. And um, my first leg was, of course, like, (laughs) wild because it was locked for a while. And then I did not understand the fitting side of it. So I've gone through this leg that I have on now. 
is my fifth one um, in okay. seven years. Okay. Um, so I've had like a revision surgery on my leg as well because my thighs were so much bigger than my calf and my prosthetic wasn't fitting well. So like those right, you're are, super muscular yeah, because you're an athlete and yeah, all that, right? So there's so many different like things that you go through with the prosthetic, any type of weight fluctuation with a transtibial or a um, above the knee, they weight affects them as well. Mm-hmm. But you can also add socks. Right. With rotation plasty, it's your foot and a carbon fiber shell. So anytime my feet would swell or anything like that, like it was just, it's been challenging. I'm very grateful in Houston. There has been, I'm now with my second prosthetist because my first one retired and I'm so sad about it. I've been tempted to like text me like, Hey, you want to build a leg in the garage? But he'd probably be like, Jillian, no. <laughs> but, um, it's been a process that I've had to learn patience with. I'm not a patient person. Right. But um, clearly if I was walking like six months post-amputation. <laughs> um, in Houston, we have two really good mm-hmm. prosthetists who are willing to learn rotation plasty. Um, I've like met with a girl in Ohio, for an mm-hmm. example, she's having hell with hers right because it's just... her, he, yeah and he doesn't specialize it it's not super common my year of having rotation plasty there were six of us in houston wow and so that's great practice for a prosthetist yeah like i mean you're having to perfect everything so my legs have always been the ones where i'm like please perfect it so that way the next patient can like literally get their leg and go right um so yeah, my last one I broke because I was doing box jumps and I broke a screw in, in the You're hinge. doing box jumps? Yeah. Like, what was I thinking? But yes, I was doing box jumps. Right. I do everything with my leg. Everything. Right. Um, except for run. I haven't figured that out yet, but we'll, we'll get there one day. <laughs> I'm like, I'm getting older. Right. Like running is not as appealing, but. Because that's when major maybe starts to. Yeah. But yeah. I'm like, I, it's one of those goals that I've set for myself to learn to do. Um. But yeah, so the prosthetic journey has been a lot. Right. Yeah, and rough, but it's been great because I have doctors who are willing to work with me. I have great support staff um, as far as like PTs and PAs go here at Anderson. And then like prosthetists who work directly with the surgeon, which you don't get very often. Right. Um, It's hard to build that relationship because they essentially have to be willing to learn a whole new modality. Mm -hmm. Like... When it comes to, you know, if you're sending them tibial patients or above the knee patients, like that's their yeah. bread and butter. But right. you're throwing in like a huge wrench, literally, right. that they're having to take 10 steps back to figure out. And a lot of them are older. Like, unfortunately, the prosthetic scene is not like a young scene for uh, providers. Like mm-hmm. a lot of them are older. And so they're retiring. The good ones are like, right. And then there's not a ton of new ones coming in. Right. So it's kind of a an art that needs to be uh, regenerated, I think. I agree. Yeah. We've talked a lot about kind of your life up to your surgery and mm-hmm. after the, you know, and the chemo. And I love to sort of hear the after yeah. treatment side of what your life has been like. Yeah. So my treatment, after treatment, I was supposed to do a lot more physical therapy than I've done. So <laughs> Dr. Lewis, you know what I'm talking about. Um <laughs> 
She talks about my gait all the time because I really yes. did not do a lot of physical therapy after. I have a great range of motion with my foot. Um, but yeah, I have had the privilege to play volleyball again, which right. was when I sat down with her, she asked me what my goals in life were. It's funny to compete for Miss Texas, which the older I've gotten, I was like that. I don't really care to compete anymore. I'm friends with a lot of the girls um, and I can watch it and then play volleyball again and mm-hmm. have a family one day. So um, after my amputation, I reached out to a couple people. It was a year of Rio 2016 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I someone sent me a, a centerfold of Sports Illustrated that had one of my teammates who was a below the knee amputee playing sitting volleyball. And I was like, what is this sport? And where do I find it? So I went on Facebook and I started like looking at girls on the team and right. I reached out to one who had rotation plasty. She's like 25 years out. So she's had a long time, but right. she's been on the team like oh God, probably 25 years now. Um, so her amputation's older than that, but, um, I reached out to her and they were of course like in Brazil playing volleyball. So she's not going to respond to me there. And right. as soon as they got back, she messaged me. And, um, for those of you listening, sitting volleyball is similar to standing. It's just, you sit down, then this court is a little smaller then that is lower and you play with your hands or whatever limbs you have. So a lot of us, are amputees, leg amputees. Mm-hmm. Um, majority are fibular hemimilia or uh, proximal femoral focal deficiency. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's like two rotation plasty patients. Some of them are like accidents. And uh, so sh- she got back with me. I got in touch with the coach, the head coach, and the rest is pretty much history. I went to my first camp in 2017, of, in May of 2017. So right right after my amputation and right after finishing chemo, I was back on the court. And it's funny because I don't, it's not like I had this like fulfillment of playing standing again, because it's completely different. But I had a whole different like epiphany with sport and Mm -hmm. like the things that our bodies can do. So in 2017, December of that year, I joined the, um, USA sitting volleyball team and um, kind of a big deal. It is. It's been really, really cool and travel the world representing the USA playing the sport that I love. Um, Like I said, I have done everything on my rotation plasty that you can possibly do. One of those things being like I hiked Machu Picchu in Rainbow Mountain. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Because we were in Peru playing. I thought I was going to die on Rainbow Mountain. My gosh. Oxygen. Your lungs, yeah. Yeah, sorry. My lungs. <laughs> the oxygen is very slim up top. I'm literally passing people who have, like, these, like, I think you can get them to go skiing, too. Like, they're, like, oxygen tanks that are, like, oh, yeah, yeah, compressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, like, literally keeping your backpack. I'm, like, passing people who are, like, sucking on these things, and I'm just sucking straight wind. Like, <laughs> this is so bad. Um, but, yeah, so I've gotten to that. I've gotten to travel, you know, to the Netherlands right. and Japan and, you know, Play the sport that I love all over again. While training, I also met my husband. So yes. um, his name's Kyle, and um, he has been such an awesome support system mm-hmm. and a driver as well. Like he's like very good at reminding me of my goals and like helping me stay on track of them because that's something that fulfills me now. Is like after treatment, I'm a goal setter. Right. And like, this is my plan. This is what I want to do. And this is how I have to get there. And so he's been great at like supporting me through that. And um, 
I was able to go in 2021 to uh, Japan to compete for US and win my first gold medal. Yes. Gold medal or How amazing gold is that? Medal. Yeah, it's Ugh. so cool. Um, I tend to forget like how exciting that is. Yeah, you represented our country at yeah, the Olympics and you nothing, have a gold medal. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. There's nothing like hearing the national anthem. Um, oh, I would be bawling. Oh my God. I can't like hardly listen to the national anthem now without right. crying because like I just think about hip table. I just think about standing there and like watching our flag be raised and we beat China for the um, gold medal match. But what a lot of people don't know is they kicked our butt in full play. Mm. Like, right. Four games. Like, they smashed us. Right. And so, um, what I say smashed us. I guess it's not like that bad. But in my mind, it was like the worst thing I've ever experienced because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, you're probably going to see them in the gold medal match. Right. And this is my first games. I am coming home with a gold medal. Right. We have gone through so much adversity with COVID. Three of my teammates didn't get to come because mm, of COVID. Shame. I was given a starting spot because of COVID because our starting middle was not able to come. So my head coach like sat me down. He's like, are you ready to start? And I was like, I'm the rookie. Right. Like you have not given me very much playing time. Right. Like, what do you mean you're going to have me start at the biggest games of my life? And so I did and we won and it was wow. great. Um, the coolest thing that I've yeah. had to experience. You have two, right? Two medals yeah so not... that that whole thing <laughs> like two one two dogs <laughs> no one kid like what one is... <laughs> kid two gold medals okay yeah, there so, we go back on track yeah one of them is from um peru actually right. well actually three that's wild i love how you lose track of the number of gold like, medals you won yeah <laughs> so um the pan-american games are right. every four years as well which sadly they have they no longer have volleyball in the mm, games, okay. just like funding and yeah, all the business. Like yeah, it's okay. a lot. But um, that was where I won my first gold medal was at the Pan American Games, which is in Peru, and it was awesome because that's where I got to like travel, right? You know, a little bit of South America, which I that's probably my mm -hmm. most favorite country I've been to yet. Nice. The culture is just so rich. The mm -hmm. colors are vibrant, beautiful. Right. Yes, and I'm right. like, I just love it. Yeah. Super Six is another tournament that we have right. every four years, usually before the game. So mm -hmm. I actually got to go to Japan in 2019 nice. prior to the Olympic Games. And uh, we got to like travel a little bit around Ooh. Tokyo yeah. because when we were there for the games, like their world was still shut down with COVID. And they're, Japan's super strict. Very, I mean, as one should be, but like yes. they were very strict. Yes. So like. During the 2019 time that we got to go, it was cool because we could see a little bit of it. Right. Which made the games like our job. Like it was like, yeah. we're not, we don't really care to go travel anywhere right. and like see anything because we've already gotten to do that. Like we're right. here to play volleyball, come home with a gold medal. Right. And we did. I know. It's so cool. Three gold medals. Yes. Now that we have that on the record. Yes. Three gold medals. I know. That's funny. I would love to hear about sort of how did Live and Leap come up? Yeah. So Live and Leap Foundation is the foundation that I started while I was on, right when I finished treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, I was 18 at diagnosis. I did not see a doctor until I was 19 because it was that same week. And we were like, let's get through your birthday. And, you know, the doctor that diagnosed me pretty much is like, a week's not going to change anything at this point. Right. They're not going to start chemo that same day anyway. So 
have a birthday, have fun kind of thing. So um, when I went to my first oncology appointment, I was told all about Make-A-Wish Foundation Mm -hmm. and everything that Make-A-Wish offers to patients. Sadly, because I had turned 19 during that time, I didn't know, I no longer qualified for a wish. Right. So I didn't know that. So like I had planned it. Which is a terrible phrase to say you're no no. longer qualified for a wish. (laughs) I know, I know. But it was like, it was very eye-opening to me because I, um, like I was, we were like looking forward to a trip with the family and like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're about to go through probably the hardest thing, one of the hardest things we'll ever experience in our lives. Right. Hopefully. Um, and you know, there's always the excitement at the end for the make a wish side of things. Um, so when I was told that I didn't qualify anymore, I was so upset because like we literally, we had spent the week like figuring out where I wanted to go. Cause they needed to go ahead and apply like right. do my application process and stuff. So I decided after that, I never wanted another patient to feel the way that I felt in that moment. Like, right. Not only is my life about to change, I may not live after this. And then I'm like excited for listening, but then it's immediately taken away. So it's just like all these emotions. And so that's where Live and Leap kind of came into play. I do and did a ton of work with um, foundations that did research based on Ewing sarcoma mm-hmm. um, and have been very successful in their research based with Ewing's. And I was like, I don't want to. It's weird. Research foundation. I mean, like, yeah, research foundations are kind of weird because they're kind of competing with one another who mm-hmm. can gain the most funding and support this hospital. And I didn't want to compete with them. Right. Um, because they had already, I mean, they were 10 years at least ahead of me in mm-hmm. research. Not that that changes anything because we're still not to the cure. But um, I wanted to be able to support them and them also be able to support me. Right. Um, so I was like, all right, research is not my calling. I need quick return mm-hmm. um, satisfaction. I right. guess is the best way to put it. Right. So with Live and Leap, I could plan these trips. I was literally living vicariously through all my patients. <laughs> I still do. Like, like oh, you want to go on a Disney cruise? Let me see what let I can. Yeah, let me see what I can do for you. <laughs> Send me all the pictures, please. Like, what else do you need? Um, so I've gotten to work with patients all over the U.S. Right. And send them all over the world. Uh, we had one girl. Our first one was to Hawaii, which is so cool. We yeah, we do them and one other patient, or not one other patient, them and one other person. So because they're adults, we do ages eighteen to twenty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so like our mission statement is, uh, we grant needs and dreams uh, to patients with life threatening illnesses ages eighteen to twenty nine. Um, they're adults, so they don't technically have to go with their parents. And sometimes right. it's fun to like not have to go with your parent and go with a friend during that time or do right. something with friends. So of course we do have patients that their families will go with them. We mm-hmm. just don't, you know, fund the whole family. We've done that. We've done, um, a girl went to the British open. Ooh. Yeah. Disney cruises. We pay for a wedding or a portion of a wedding, right. which is fun. Cause like, I love event planning. So yeah. I kind of got to work with like the event coordinator and things like that. Um, we had a young lady with breast cancer. She had two kids, single mom. We paid rent her rent for six months. Wow. Um, yeah. So just, it's it really helps. cool. We get to do yeah. like such unique things because they're not kids. Yeah. So they're not like only seeing trips or things like that. Like they're in school, dorm rooms, mm-hmm. like their bedroom, like things like that, that we get to like be a big part of. Right. For them. Right. Um, 
and then give them something to look forward to either during treatment or after it. So, right. Yeah. That's, how it That's came awesome. About. Yeah. It's fun. I know. Shame. It's fun. Yep. What are your goals moving forward? Whether it be foundation, family, life, work, what are your, what is your outlook? So I always have like short-term goals and then I have like my, of course, like big long-term goals. So um, like we just talked about, I just switched companies. So mm-hmm. I'm super excited with them to, as a salesperson, like in my blood, um, be able to like dive deeper into that and in the oncology space. Like I'm lucky right. that I, I'll get to work with the oncologist that removed like 14 inches of my dad's colon right that I wouldn't have gotten to do with Stryker so I I'm getting to touch more patients and more like surgeons and families things like that from a different standpoint as far as volleyball goes um I won't be competing in Paris I um when I was pregnant I had a bunch of like crazy things happen which like didn't allow me to work out so Mm -hmm. I was in training um and I didn't get to go to any qualifiers so I didn't qualify technically for Paris which I'm okay with right the next game I have a there's bed bugs there right now you don't want to go to Paris (laughs) literally and I was told I would never be able to have a baby like because of treatment and now I have an eight-month-old naturally which is insane to think just incredible yeah and so um the next game is LA 2028 so there is part of me that's like well after Paris it's a whole new quad I can start training again like yeah. The door is never closed, essentially. Like, it's, I can try out. If I'm good enough, then I can start training again. Yeah. Um, so with that, that's kind of like my next goal of volleyball is just thinking about, you know, L.A. And if that's something that I want to do whenever we get to that point. Um, with my foundation, I kind of, with work, I kind of had to put a hold on um, the foundation because I was, you have a lot going on. You have an yeah. eight month old and yes. you're like transitioning jobs yeah. and, and you're just like, I had to learn a lot. Like yeah. I, I was like school all over again, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though I'm in school getting my master's now, which I graduate. Like, I didn't know that. Yeah. What are you getting your master's in? Uh, healthcare administration. Congratulations. I didn't know yes, that. I'm That's graduating December. Are you really? Woo-hoo! Oh my yeah. God. Wow. Um, so, and you're getting your master's yeah. and you're transitioning your job and you have an eight month old. Yeah. And I started my math. I found out I got accepted into my master's like two weeks after I got pregnant. Oh my god! So like I was like, yeah, oh, I might as well do it. Yeah, like why not? We're gonna be crazy anyway. So oh my gosh. Yeah, my transition to my next job is gonna be kind of wild because it's also gonna be during my capstone semester. <laughs> but oh I'm so excited because we have to choose a like a problem in healthcare that we would love to be like further addressed. So I'm going to do childhood cancer research Yeah, because I do think there needs to be more research. Yeah. But on it anyway. um, So yeah, I think it's kind of funny this point in my life, my goals are more long-term than Mm -hmm. they are short-term because I'm kind of just having like live in the moment of where we're at. Um, Embracing the chaos. Yeah. And so long-term I I would love to get, back into live and leap more intensely mm-hmm. and be able to do um like fundraisers like we were before COVID right. also like through it for a weird yeah. loop because yeah. we had to stop for the year having the type of fundraisers we were having mm-hmm. fishing tournaments and things like that yeah we fishing lo- tournament we love fishing yeah oh my gosh that yeah. sounds exciting it is it's fun i've never been water. you've never been fishing no never <gasps> girl i know we're gonna have to go out to corpus go to the aquarium yes aquarium and then fishing, fishing. 
Yeah. Oh my god, we need to do it. It'll be so. Fun. I'm so. I'm so It'll excited. Beat, like all of oh, this everything. Yes. So, um, really getting back into that and connecting with more patients. I for a while was doing a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. I haven't really again because of life. Life. So, um, I want to get back into that mm-hmm. and truly. Stryker really allowed me to connect with surgeons all over the U.S. Right. And I would love to, you know, be able to incorporate more into their, like, I don't want to say their patient care, but be an advocate for them. Um, my surgery was at MD Anderson, so I'm a huge advocate for Anderson. Mm-hmm. Being that, like, outlet for patients, I am one who has had a successful story. Right. Not everybody's is this way. I am very lucky. I feel like that I have, um, I don't like the capacity out, I guess is the best way to put it or the way to process. Like I process the you do way of cancer life fairly well. Um, there of course are hard days. Like that's hundred percent normal. And, um, but I'm thankful for the community community that I've made through cancer mm-hmm. that allow me to have those hard days yet still like come out on the other side so grateful right you know for everything that I've been through right I feel do you feel like the because that in that scenario you have a distal femur tumor Mm -hmm. and you're sort of presented with the options of above the knee amputation rotation plasty versus um and distal femur endoprosthesis do you is it in your way like there are different answers for the different types of patients like for for a certain type of patient the best answer for them Mm -hmm. is a distal femur endoprosthesis where for for another patient it's going to be a rotation plasty or it could even be an above the knee amputation yeah like i mentioned in the beginning dr lewis was very good when i sat down with her immediately she's like what are your goals in life right first question and that's where she based my options off of so mm-hmm. she didn't even give me the option to limb salvage. Like I looked at her and I was like, why didn't she give me the option to limb salvage? And she was like, that's not what you want to do. Like, that's not what your goals are. Right. And um, so I, she is amazing at that, being able to sit down, look right. at the patient, give me what you want to do. And I'm going to give you what your options are. And uh, so, yes, I do think that it's very patient specific on mm-hmm. what the better option is for them. Yeah. You um, have gone through so much. What is something that knowing everything that you've gone through, you would want to tell your younger self when you were diagnosed or anybody who's kind of, they're in that, literally that crisis moment of they've received that news, that Mm -hmm. diagnosis, they're presented with these options. Be patient. (laughs) I have to remind myself of that daily, but I wish I could go back and like tell my like younger self at diagnosis. Like I, it's weird. I don't want to say enjoy this time, but it was the first time in my life where it was ever like paused of like, this is what the next year of your life is going to look like. Just sit with it and be patient with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, you have to have goals on the other side. Like once that year is done, what's your plan? Where are you going? What are you going right, to do? Right. But um, I look back and think like it was weird. I had gone to college. I was finally living by myself. Never thought I would live with my parents again. You know, figured mm-hmm. out my first semester, made my friends. Right. Living in the dorm, loved it. And then I get this like news, and a week later, I'm back living with my parents. Right. And 
I think about it now. I'm like, I wish I would have enjoyed that time back home with my parents more and with my family. And, right. You know, just the most authentic space that we've ever been in because mm-hmm. there was really like we there's only one thing we knew and it was that I would go for this day on chem- for chemo for five days and then I'd get out for a week and right. then I'd go, like that was it yeah and so I kind of rushed that time away trying to like make myself like it's gonna be okay to like, rationalize it yeah, and yeah, to yeah. cope and but I tell patients now when I meet with them at diagnosis and families, because I'm also like me with a lot of parents, I just like enjoy the seconds that you have. Like, don't rush them away because it could be the last couple seconds you have. Like, right. That's the reality of cancer. Like, it could be gone like that. Um, and so enjoy like the special moments. It sucks sitting in a hospital for six days or, you know, leukemia patients for months at a time, but you can find like happiness in those moments and in those times make friends with your um care providers because they they care about you they love you Mm -hmm. and will help you through a breakup yeah (laughs) so funny if you listen to this that'd be hilarious but i have to tell the story um after i'd broken up with him he of course then wanted to come to straighten that and like yeah sit with me and (laughs) i my like nurses were like, Do you want me to tell them that we like gave you some Benadryl? Like, you're tired, like, you're asleep. Like, what do you want us to do? And so, and they're like, It was funny because they were like my age, they were protecting you. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they were like two or three years older than me, just out of nursing yeah. school, you know. And so they're like, What do you need? What do you, what do you want us to do? Does your stomach hurt? Do you need anything? Like, do you need to push a flush in there and act like it was Benadryl? Like, what do you? <laughs> they were so great. I love them. And they're still like my friends today, but oh, it's so funny. Like, yeah. They were my people through that. And I thought that I would be so excited to finish chemo, but there was also a grieving side of, I had sleepovers with these people like every week because I was in the hospital five days and they were my, like, yeah, they're your people. Yeah. They were my nurses at night and my MAs at night. And then it was like, oh, bye. We'll see you later. You know, there's not a ton of follow up. So, um, when I go back for appointments, so I like make sure I go to the floor and like right. see my people. No, that's so good. Some of them were at my wedding. And my, yeah. So I really, that's really sweet. Yeah. But just be patient in that time. And I'm not good at it, but just like let the process run its course and know that that doesn't have to alter the brain dynamic that you have going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, patience. Patience. Not good at it. <laughs> this is why why I went into surgeries because I don't have it. Yeah, bless the people who do. You <laughs> know, we're gonna go into the final segment, which oh, is the final five. Yeah. Which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. Yeah. So my first final five question, and you are have been yeah. in surgery, so you can actually answer this question. I like this. What is your favorite procedure and why? It's funny because I listened to the podcast and Have you, oh yeah, shame. I even got Kyle listening too. Um, but I was excited for this part because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a doctor, and I don't. Have you really ever? Ha- have you ever had patients or like people who? I are- had Andrea on here. Oh, okay. yeah, we yeah. talked about like starting the podcast and everything. But it's true, you are my second non-surgeon. Like non-surgeon. Yeah. Um, but I'm so lucky because I've gotten to be in surgery. Yeah. My favorite procedure is DFR. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it is so cool that 
I mean, you'd think I would say rotation plasty, but um, that surgery is just really long. <laughs> but with the DFR, what's really cool to me is you can remove someone's joint and build it back with metal mm-hmm. and they're up and walking like yeah. that same day, if not early next. Right. Um, and just like the the math that has to go into it. I am awful at math. So the fact that I love it so much is funny, but, um, and as a rep, it was like full conversations, authentic, transparent conversations with my surgeons trying to figure out what's best for this patient. And like, um, you know, what, uh, what cuts and things like that is going to be the best outcome mm-hmm. for them and stem sizes and things like that. So it allowed me as a rep to be a little involved. Which right. Is, which, is which is nice. And yeah. it, it's far more, there, there are intricacies yes. to it. Yes. Yeah. And like, I would probably say rotation plastic if I had sat in on more, but mm-hmm. I haven't got to right. in on a ton of them. And like I said, they're so long, but they're so intricate and very like, intricate. It's very, um, little movements and things like that. And so with GFRs, it's not as, like yeah. minute correct like changes it's like you could see this big tumor and yeah. this big bone come out and then you see it laying next to the endoprosthesis right, right. next to it so yeah. yeah that's cool what are your go-to topics when you do presentations it really just depends the crowd that I'm speaking to so if I'm speaking to I mean I always talk about like my cancer journey but I sometimes we'll just talk about volleyball. So mm-hmm. when I'm talking about my cancer journey, um, I love to be able to break it down very like at the kindergarten level, essentially, because right. a lot of these people don't understand medicine that I'm getting to speak to. But um, I really enjoy like bringing awareness to mm-hmm. sarcoma, right. not even just Ewing, just like sarcoma in general and the craziness behind it. So I have to base it like on the crowd, but right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What is your favorite story slash memory as a patient or as an industry representative? Ooh, um, probably getting to work with the surgeon that I like helped save my life. Right. Um, that's like a big story that I, you know, I get to tell whenever I moved to Houston with Stryker my goal, my whole reason for working for Stryker was to be able to work for Dr. Lewis mm-hmm. as her rep. Um, and so when I moved here, I met my manager, like maybe the first, second time and we were talking about like my amputation. And I was like, yeah, Dr. Lewis did it. And he looked at me and he was like, the Dr. Lewis. And I was like, <laughs> yes, the, the Dr. Lewis, you know? And, um, and he was like, what? And he like sent a selfie of like, him and I and she was like what the heck is she doing here like you know I want her to be my rep kind of thing and so um it was just so cool because that's like that was my why after treatment um like why I went to like went into strikers I wanted to be able to be a rep and I wanted to like help these patients that my surgery option wasn't the best for them and truly understand the surgery and become an expert in it right so yeah. yeah And then, yeah, that's, that's special. Yeah. Literally to be, it's like a full circle, full circle. Yeah. yeah. And when I like travel with, when I traveled with Stryker and stuff and people would be like, Oh, who did your surgery? And I would tell them and then they're like, and you're her rep now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. the cool thing too about Anderson is like, they always have the same team with them. Mm-hmm. Like scrub techs. Yes. 
x-ray techs, anesthesiologists. And they're so good. And they're so, yeah. So my first time walking into the OR, they were like, Jillian, because a lot of patients, I mean, a lot of them, like they work with you on the table and then they don't get to see you after. Right. And success stories are few and far between when it comes to sarcoma. And so it was like, like, yeah. Oh my gosh. What the heck? Yeah. You know, so I do think that that's sort of a missing piece that like I wish there was a way for us to be able to bring the success stories to the people in the ORs. And like even SPD, like all the way yeah. down the SPD. Yeah. They're putting these trays together all day every day. Right. And it's like what yeah, they don't see whereas they're like I all the the scrub techs here, the circulators, they're incredible, such yes. great humans and so and they do a fantastic job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's just like when you know you have your dream team in the OR, you're just like, oh, yes. gosh. You know? Yeah. And I wish there was a way, and maybe I should just work on this better, to be able to bring the success stories and the things that they did well, yeah. bring that to them and be yeah. like, remember that kid that you did and mm-hmm. you helped you with? and Or you remember that nail that we did? in like in less than an hour yeah in the middle like literally (laughs) middle of the night he went home post-op day one you know what I mean and just like that sort of stuff and so I wish that's something probably I'll work on is just to be able to bring that to them yeah just yeah they're like just in a role it's it's such a it's such a honestly like when I walk in the OR and I see you see you see, (laughs) see the dream team you're just like your blood pressure just drops and you just know you just know oh gosh so cool what are your favorite activities outside of the hospital and outside of medicine um so i love i love to hunt and fish Mm -hmm. we are on the water a lot right um my parents live down in the corpus christi area and um also being with major now like having a little one uh watching him grow in his mind brains are oh my gosh they are mind-blowing to me and like right. how babies learn is so cool mm-hmm. to me like it just blows my mind how yeah. they how they learn I right don't understand it i know but it's so cool yeah and it's adorable yeah. and you just I, you stare at i stare at noah just like i just yeah like an awe. and you're just like you know what i mean and i'm like i create like yeah i grew fingernails and yeah toenails, and eyeballs and hair and i know like, and you have to cut them and just oh, like like what i've it's yet like... to take note of his first hair <laughs> my husband the other day was like i can't wait till he turns one i was like he doesn't have enough hair to cut yeah no look at it. <laughs> no right now noah has like i think he can make a ponytail out of it i love it i know yeah a nice one mm-hmm. um yeah my husband he's bald so he'd probably not not let that happen <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like negative he'd like negatory goes right they're not happening oh my yeah. goodness my last question, what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I feel like I kind of touched on this a little bit in the beginning when we were talking about um, like patients coming in and the way they're presenting. But one of my biggest things is like, it doesn't hurt to further investigate. And I know a lot of people are apprehensive about further investigating because like in the USC insurance thing is so challenging. but if it can save a patient's life because you diagnose them, of course, like I'm going based off like sarcoma because you diagnose them three months before mm-hmm. you finally decide right. to do something, right. um, then like that's huge. And like I said, the insurance thing is a whole nother topic, but 
it doesn't hurt to just take an x-ray and if you don't see anything on the x-ray then yeah there but if they keep coming in presenting pain then keep investigating because Mm -hmm. yes growing pains are normal but yeah there's something so different about cancer pain that I can't even I don't even know how to explain it but um that's probably one of like my biggest things and that's what I like I said I give lots of surgeons that I've worked with. yeah <laughs> they're like talking about just basic joint replacements on mm-hmm. 70 year old patients and I'm like okay but if you have a young kid come in <laughs> they're like oh god here, like, here it is here it is <laughs> there she is you know but um it's because I'm so passionate and I do think of course there are some patients that tumors are going to be metastatic by the time investigations they come in or anything right, like that right. but um I don't know. I have a feeling that there is a way if we get on top of it sooner than later that we can find. We can help. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. who knows? Again, outcome will still be the same because they won't react to chemo how they're supposed to or whatever. But just yeah. getting on top of it. Yeah. This has been incredible, Jillian. Thank so you. Fun. I, I love know. it. Thanks for having me. This I know. is really, really cool. This is special. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm excited, like, as a patient to be able to, like, share with who knows who listens but if there's any other oncologists or just ortho surgeons uh females in general in the ortho space is like y'all are a different breed (laughs) it's it's a lot and um there needs to be more of it i agree i i do think there's some intimidation factor which Mm -hmm. i hate to say that but like when you're going through med school and residency or whatever of like it's the boys club, but like mm-hmm. girls can totally take over and will take over. <laughs> I think so too. I think we've started. I'm, 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 I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. It's been cool. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Jillian Williams. Please check out Jillian's foundation, Live and Leap at liveandleap.com. That's L-I-V-E-N-L-E-A-P.com. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you a new episode next month.